Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. We're going to be talking about sustainable living at home today with Jess. Um, before we get going, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone. Um, my name's Jess Harrison. Um, I'm the team leader of sustainability planning at City of Greater Dandenong here in Melbourne. Um, and I'm also currently the secretary of the Southeast Council's Climate Change Alliance or SECA, um, which is a group of nine councils in uh, Southeast Melbourne working together to tackle climate change. That sounds amazing. And that sort of fits into what we're going to be talking about today, which is great. But uh, um, first we'll uh, move on to have you met Jess. Um, so it's a bit of an introduction to you. Uh, so what's your favourite book? Um, I think it would have to be Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, she's a Native American woman um, and she's also a trained botanist and ecologist. Um, so it's a non-fiction book, but uh, it ties together beautifully science, traditional knowledge um, and just the idea of a relationship with nature. So highly recommend <laughs> Um, that sounds like a great book. Um, what's a movie you've seen recently? Um, I took my mum to see Where the Crawdads Sing on the weekend. It was pretty good, but um, we were joking going into it, like, do crawdads actually sing? And we didn't find out, so <laughs> there were no singing crawdads. <laughs> I don't even know what a crawdad is. Um, it's a freshwater crustacean. Okay. So I think um, here in Australia we call them crayfish, but, yeah, different names around the world, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, is there a podcast you're listening to at the moment? Um, I've been listening to a lot of Science Versus, um, which is a fantastic show that takes a lot of like scientific principles and stories and um, just explains them and breaks them down in a really interesting and engaging way. Yes. Um, I, I also listen to that podcast and I really nice. like it. <laughs> um, um, do you have a role model that you look up to? Um, I think it'd have to be Jane Goodall. Um, she's done so much for uh, naturalism and our understanding of um, social life in non-human species. Um, so, yeah, definite professional crush on her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and have you uh, completed a course recently or was there one that you really enjoyed? Um, the most recent course I did was actually, uh, I got my motorbike learner's permit a couple of weeks ago. So um, in Victoria, you have to do a, a mandatory two-day course um, to get your permit. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, is there a particular reason that you decided to use a motorbike? It's been a bit of a bucket list item for a long time, but um, in the spirit of, you know, um, trying not to waste uh materials and um, just a general principle of trying not to buy new things uh, without good reason. My um, my poor car that I've had since, since I was 17 that has been through a lot, um, it's on its last legs. And I've been thinking for a while, like I hardly drive. 
Um, but I do have to sometimes head out to the country to see my parents and um, I've got a, a horse, <laughs> a pet horse, <laughs> that, so need to go out and feed him. Um, but for a long time I've been thinking, why am I driving this car that could fit five people just by myself? So, yeah, switching to, uh, to two wheels just to try and cut down on some emissions there. Yeah, I definitely think that when I'm driving my car, I'm like, I only have a drive with at most two people and some groceries in here. Exactly. Um, I don't think a motorbike would maybe work because uh, <laughs> groceries, um, I don't know where you'd put them. Yeah, I mean, you can get storage solutions okay. for motorbikes or um, you can ride with a backpack, but I must admit I haven't tried that yet. So if you see someone like fallen over on the side of the road in Melbourne with a bunch of groceries <laughs> scattered around, um, please stop and help me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, I'd love a car that was just big enough for that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how would you define household management? Um, yeah, well, I must admit, um, I hadn't necessarily heard of that term before learning about this podcast. Um, so I just started thinking about, you know, what that kind of means for me and how I manage my house. Um, and I think, the way we look at our houses has definitely shifted <laughs> over the last couple of years um, with COVID. So, um, you know, previously my house was just completely my own safe space. It was kind of a little retreat, safe haven um, from the world. Now it's also my my office part of the time too. So um, I think it, it really uh, embodies the values that I have. Um, a lot of my furniture is secondhand. Um, uh, there's a lot of plants and things around. Um, I've got a little worm farm out on my balcony um, to avoid food waste. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, your house is kind of the centre of your world in, in some ways. And um, I think it really needs to define you and, and what, um, what you're about in life. So... I love that, um, I love that, I guess, definition. It's so different from, I think, what other people um, have said, but it's still keeping, I guess, in, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's everything that you do at home. Um, and for you, it's partly, um, yeah, your, your identity, I guess. Um, what do you think people get wrong with household management? Um, I don't know if there's a wrong necessarily. There's probably just... Um, improvements that could be made, glass half full. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, if I look at it through um, a lens of sustainability, I think um, two of the biggest things are food waste and um, wasteful consumption of energy. Um, and I think we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit yes. later. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, what is sustainable living? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's probably two terms I should define just before we get started. Um, and that would be sustainability and climate change because the two are very closely linked together. Um, so I won't go into a full explanation of what climate change is, but super briefly, um, climate is basically just looking at the average weather conditions over a really long period of time. Um, and what we know uh, since temperature started to be recorded in the 19th century is that um, as a trend, uh, global temperatures have been rising for a very long time. Um, currently, we're an average of about 1.2 uh, 
degrees um, warmer than we were back in the 19th century. And that doesn't sound like very much, um, but it really <laughs> is. Um, when you look at all of the, the delicate processes and balances um, in the world that are required uh, to sustain life. So um, we know that that's strongly correlated with human activity. Um, so when we do things like we burn coal to generate electricity or we drive around in our cars, we're generating these things called greenhouse gas emissions um, or carbon emissions. You'll sometimes hear them called as well. Um, and that's basically like a big blanket um, surrounding the Earth's atmosphere, trapping the sun, um, sunlight and heat. Uh, and so the world gets warmer and warmer um, as we continue to generate these emissions. So um, that's what climate change is. Um, I would say that sustainability is recognising that the world has finite resources um, and trying to live your life in a way uh, that doesn't compromise the ability of future generations to meet their own needs um, through the Earth's resources. So we know that with climate change, if it continues to get warmer and we don't, you know, put a cap on the temperature increase, um, eventually all of Earth's um, ecosystems will fail. Um, the Earth will no longer be able to sustain life. So I think sustainability and climate action really go hand in hand. I guess... Um what can we do I get in the house to make it more sustainable? It's a, a big question. <laughs> or maybe just start with one and we'll do multiple. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the biggest things we can do is around behaviour change. Mm -hmm. That's a really good place to start. Um, and I guess um, tying back into that concept of household management and how people actually manage their lives from their house, um, it's a really natural way or place to start is mm. in the home. Um, so just talking about uh, what I was saying before about um, energy consumption, we know that around about 40% of emissions globally come from our buildings, including our homes. So it's quite a, a large component of emissions. Um, and of course, it varies across the world. Um, and I know you'll have listeners in um, other countries as well, not just here in Australia. So um, in Melbourne in particular, our houses, especially our older houses, tend to be pretty poor in terms of insulation. Um, there's a lot of, you know, heating or air conditioning leaking um, through gaps in the walls or the roof or even the floor. Um, so that can be really difficult over winter for people to keep comfortable and warm. Um, one of the things you can do is just try to warm yourself first. <laughs> so rather than heating the entire house, um, put on extra clothes, have a hot water bottle, have a blanket, see how you go. Um, if you're still cold, uh, try to just heat the room you're in if possible. So close all the doors off. Um, try and just uh, use heating as sparingly as possible. Um, and we'll talk, I think, a little bit more later about what renters specifically can do because that's another kind of challenge. Um, but, yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. <laughs> yeah, so um, I know for me at the beginning of winter I'm always freezing cold even mm. though it's roughly the same temperature the whole winter or yeah. it only gets colder from there. And then I sort of just acclimatise and I'm like, I'm just cold now every day. <laughs> um 
Yeah. So I remember in the, but the first month, my heating bill was huge. Mm. Um, I think it was partly because of the um, you know, price increases in energy, but also yes. because we were just, you know, um, closing off one room and putting the heater on all day and sitting right next to that. Exactly. Yeah. So um, do you have any suggestions? Um, so yeah, you, you suggested wrapping ourselves up more warmly. I guess using the heater okay, is okay when you are sort of reaching the end of like, I can't put any more clothes on without um, uh, losing the ability to bend my arms. Mm. Would you say that that's okay? Of course. Yeah. yeah I think um, a lot of times people tend to beat themselves up about um, things related to sustainability and climate change. Um, you know, the amount of friends who have shown up to meet me for a walk and They've got their little disposable coffee cup and they're like, I'm sorry, Jess, I forgot my reusable cup. Like, don't worry about it. We don't need people to be doing things perfectly. We need a lot of people to be doing things imperfectly and just trying their best. And um, I think the point you made about uh, the increase in energy cost is really, really important as well. Um, there's this uh, topic of energy poverty where people, oftentimes renters, have to make the choice between either being really cold and suffering or running their heater um, but then facing a massive bill. Um, and there's a link I can add into the show notes later, which is a study that came out yesterday um, around that topic, which is really interesting. But, um, yeah, I think for renters specifically um, and within Australia, uh, you can have a look at the Energy Compare website, which will tell you if you're on the, the best deal. So might be some potential savings there. Um, but yeah, I mean, like health has to come first and the topic of health and climate change is really related. Um, but again, you know, you're only one person. You have limited levers of control. You often... Um, especially as a renter, won't necessarily have much choice over what kind of house you live in or, um, you know, the ability to re-insulate a house, for example. So I think you can only do what you can do. Um, if you're trying and you're being mindful um, of that, then that's a really good start and that's what we need. That's um, good to hear because, yeah, again, um, there's only so much we can do sometimes. Um, with um, different types of heaters, do you, do you know anything about that? Because um, yeah. we had this really old one in my house and it made a lot of noise and it didn't heat the room very efficiently. So yeah. we actually asked the um, land um, the landlords to replace it with something um, more efficient. Right. Um, so, but I was wondering afterwards, is it actually more efficient? Do you, Would you be able to speak about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so what kind of heater was your old one, aside from really noisy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure. It's electric. It's electric. Okay. Yeah. Was it a wall? It was wall, wall heater. And yeah. the new one is also a wall heater. Okay. Interesting. But it's quieter. It's quieter. Okay. Well, that's probably a good a good sign. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much the most efficient method of heating and cooling you can get is um, a reverse cycle split system. So um, an AC unit that also does heating. Mm -hmm. um, and that's commonly what uh, the old kind of gas wall heaters are being replaced with now, especially in rentals um, or units or apartment buildings. Um, 
something that's really common uh, in Victoria as well is ductic gas heating, and that's quite inefficient. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, the the wall heaters are pretty much the least efficient out of any heating options. So okay. I'm quite surprised that your uh, your owner um, of the building decided to replace like for like. Um, they, they did actually look at putting a um, reverse cycle in, right. but they couldn't do it because of the structure of the building or something. Yeah. And that's yeah. a real challenge, um, especially in, because you're in a multi-story apartment mm-hmm. building. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So um the owner of my apartment um, put a split system in back in January this year mm-hmm. and they had to like put in the ducting in a really weird way, like kind of through the window um, and it looks really, it looks a bit janky but, you know, it does the job. Um, and just from personal experience, so yeah, I'm renting a, a one-bedroom 70s era apartment. Um, last winter I didn't have any heating Um, so I had a a tiny little electric fan heater that I would only use when I got really desperate. Um, and because we're in lockdown a lot of winter last year, I was home a lot. Um, so I'd put it on just for like a couple of hours because I'd be trying to work from home. Um, I'm taking my own advice. I'm in my like winter coat and beanie and, uh, gloves trying to like type on my keyboard and my fingers are frozen, um, and I can't feel them. So I would put the, um, the little fan heater on just for a couple of hours. Um, and I've been comparing my bills this winter um, compared to last. And even though I have been using the split system a little bit more than I would have been using um, the fan heater, my bills are like half the cost Wow, compared to last year. So I, I heard that those fan heaters are really um, not very good. Oh, they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, again, there's only so much you can do and mm-hmm. you need to be able to be comfortable in your house. And, you know, if you're working from home, you need to be able to feel your fingers tight. So I try um, try to make sure everyone understands, like, you don't need to feel guilty about doing things like that. Um, it's really important that people do kind of take responsibility, I guess, for their own part um, to play in sustainability and climate change. But this whole thing is so much bigger than just one individual person putting on the heater for a few hours so that they don't freeze. Mm. Yeah. Um, so what, what other things can we do to make the house more sustainable? Um, there's a few. So um, food waste is another big one. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people don't realise that when we waste food or we send food to landfill, it actually, as it breaks down, generates carbon emissions as well. So it does contribute to um, to the greenhouse gases and climate change. Um, so what you can do is, number one, try to <laughs> not waste food where you can. Um, easier said than done sometimes as someone who has quite a small stomach. <laughs> sometimes, you, you know, you go out to a restaurant Um, you're not too sure what the portion size is going to be and, you know, you can't eat at all. Um, So, you know, just uh, if you can, try to bring that home and eat it for lunch the next day. (laughs) Um, Also saves you some money. You don't have to buy lunch or don't have to, yeah, purchase food for lunch the next day. Exactly, 100%. (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of these kind of sustainability tips have the added bonus of saving Mm -hmm. money as well, which is always a good thing. But Yeah, I mentioned before, um, I've got a little worm farm at home, um, just on my balcony. And, you know, um, I grew up with parents who were fairly eco-conscious. We lived out 
um, in the the Dandenongs around Melbourne in the forest there. And uh, we always had a compost heap growing up, so it was just totally normal. And when I moved out and moved into a share house, um, that became much less uh, less achievable, I guess. So when I moved out on my own, I was like, huh, I've got an apartment with a balcony. Like, what solutions are there now to um, be kind of avoiding sending food to landfill? And my local council um, was doing a program where they give you 50% off on various composting um, solutions. So there's also something called a um, Bakashi um, bin, I think it's called. I can send the link later if anyone's mm-hmm. interested. Um, but that's a solution for people who don't even have balconies. So it just sits uh, in your kitchen and it breaks down food waste. Um, it's all contained. Uh, so you don't have to worry about any smells or anything like that. So there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of progress made, I think, in this space over the last couple of years. And um, yeah, I use the um, the castings from my worm farm um, on my plants and I've been trying to grow some herbs and things on the balcony as well, cutting down on the herbs I have to buy from the supermarket that come, you know, packaged in plastic, which I try to avoid. And then what happens with my herbs that I buy from the supermarket is I end up throwing away half of them (laughs) because they wilt in the fridge. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And Um, that contributes to to wastage, I guess. That's true. Mm. Um, A good hack for that one is um, if your herbs are looking a bit sad, (laughs) you can try putting them in a bowl of ice water. Um, That sometimes will give them a little bit of life back. But if they're really kind of about to go, you can chop them up and freeze them um, in little ice cube trays. Then when you want to use them in cooking in the future, you just kind of chuck an ice cube of basil into your that's, your pasta. Or That's great because, like, yeah, I always – I buy a bunch of pasta and basil right now is so – well, all, yes. all herbs are expensive. True. But, um, <laughs> you know, and I buy them and I'm like, oh, it's $5 worth of basil and I only get a little bit out of it and then I end up throwing it away. But Exactly. And then I'm like – it's so good to have basil pasta. <laughs> True. Um, I have an incredible weakness for pesto pasta. Like Favourite comfort food. <laughs> yeah, same. I love so, pesto pasta. Yeah, completely understand. Mm. Um, so for people who don't know, um, what is a worm farm? Um, so a worm farm, uh, the one I have is kind of a little, um, I want to say it's maybe a little bit less than a metre tall. Um, it's fairly, you know, I'm gesturing for those who are just listening and can't see. Um, it's fairly compact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got two little trays in it. Uh, in the bottom, you put your worms. Um, so you can buy worms from a couple of different places. Um, if you're in Australia, Bunnings sells them. Um, they're called red wrigglers. Okay. The, the typical breed that you get. Um, so... I got about a thousand worms. That's kind of the um, the starter pack, I guess. Um, so they live in the bottom tray. Um, mm-hmm. Then in the top tray is where you put all your food scraps. So mm-hmm. you, you just pour them in. Um, the worms is kind of like a little, like a sieve kind of or sieve mm-hmm. kind of um, barrier between the two trays, so they can come and go. Okay. So the worms wriggle up and they start munching on all of your food scraps. Uh-huh. Um, and as they break. Uh, the food scraps down, it kind of turns into this really fine kind of dirt-like consistency and you can then use that um, on your garden or on your indoor plants. Um, It's a really effective Mm fertiliser. 
So, yeah. And what can you put on in the worm farm? Like, can you put ev- like all foods there? Almost everything. Um, the only real no-no is uh, bones or meat scraps. So if you do that, you'll get maggots and it, it will not be a good time. <laughs> so um, the bakashi bin that I was talking about before, that does, um, you can put meat scraps or bones in that, that will break it down. Um, but yeah, the, the worms will eat pretty much anything. Um, even things like uh, old paper, um, they'll munch through happily. Um, the dirt from your vacuum cleaner can go in there as well, which sounds really weird. Can, um, it, can it eat cat fur? Yeah, probably. Probably. Okay, because okay, yeah. that's mostly what's in my vacuum cleaner. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Always shedding. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I think that would be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not very fussy. So okay. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good allies in mm. the, uh, the climate change fight. <laughs> and the Bikashi, um, so... Is that just like a bin? Yeah, it's kind of, it's again, a, um, a closed kind of bin. It's fairly small, um, kind of like the, like the size of a little like tin that you might have for tea or coffee, a little bit bigger. Um, and that uses um, some chemicals to mm-hmm. break things down. I'm not exactly sure specifically of the process, so I will send a link if people want to learn more. I don't want to um, say the wrong thing. But, um, yeah, friends that I know that have them say they work pretty well and um, that's a good solution if you don't have an outdoor space or a balcony Mm. as well. Yeah, because what I have in my council is we just have a big green bin. Yes. um, That you just kind of chuck all the food scraps in. Okay, cool. Um, But in summer, you open the lid and a swarm of like bugs just come out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it's, oh, it's awful. It smells terrible as well. Yeah. Um, Um, So, yeah, I think that's a really common um, concern, especially with the big communal bins. Um, And it can be really hard if you're sharing with neighbours and they don't necessarily understand, you know, what can and can't go in there. Um, one of the, the hacks to help with um, smells in that kind of situation is uh, you can wrap your food scraps in newspaper or mm-hmm. kind of any old paper that you have lying around um, and that will help absorb some of the liquid um, okay. and some of the smells. So that helps a little bit with flies. Mm-hmm. Um, but also... Uh, coffee grounds if you're recycling those in the green bin they're really effective at absorbing all the smells in particular (laughs) so yeah yeah we do recycle our coffee grounds but maybe not enough yeah I I guess you're just gonna have to drink more coffee (laughs) okay well I guess if I have to oh no what a shame yeah um yeah so other than um food waste and heating are there any other um things that we can do Yeah, um, it's probably a big one for listeners um, in the Middle East around water conservation. Um, So at the moment in Australia, uh, most of the the eastern coast of Australia has been experiencing floods. So we're okay in terms of um, conserving water, but in places like the UAE, um, that's obviously a huge issue for them. Um, so some of the things you can do is, um, if you have a look at what products you're using in the shower, um, have a look and see if you can find products that say they're grey water, um, friendly. Um, if you can incorporate those, you can then have a little, just like 
bucket in the shower when you're having, having a shower um, to collect some of the, the water. Um, and you can use that to water your plants or out in the garden, um, you know, to wash down paths or areas outside that are dusty, things like that. Um, that's probably the, the biggest tip to save um, water. I know in Victoria, um, private development, so new um, residential areas being built, are mandated to have rainwater tanks, which is fantastic. So they're commonly connected to toilet flushing um, at home. Um, but if you don't have that option, if you're renting, you could also look at things like uh, water efficient shower heads. Um, that's, yeah, probably the main the main thing you could do as a renter. <laughs> so is that something that you can just unscrew the old one and just put a new one on? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. For most, most showers, yeah. Okay. Um, and quite a few uh, local council areas in Victoria um, are engaging with a free showerhead upgrade program. So you might be wandering through the shopping centre and see someone standing at a little um, booth offering away free water-efficient showerheads. So, yeah, just keep an eye out and see what's available because you might be able to get a free one, which is always good. Yeah, I have a feeling that I need to go onto my council website and see what they're offering. Definitely. Um, yeah, see if they're offering anything interesting that I can take advantage of. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, mm. I think you said you're in Melbourne's north and mm -hmm. a couple of the council areas around there, um, they they have fantastic sustainability programs. They're mm. really, really engaged. So I do have a feeling that my council probably would be engaged, but I just haven't taken advantage, I guess, because um, I just haven't known that that was a, um, a possibility, I guess, which is um, it's great to learn these things because not only – will I reduce my water usage, but I'll reduce my bill again. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's an added bonus. Yeah. <laughs> With every, pretty much every utility mm. um, is rising in cost at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I think, one of the biggest ways that we engage um, with the general public about this issue you know, um, even if you don't care about climate change or uh, the planet specifically, a lot of people care about their savings mm -hmm. um, and their wallet. So, yeah, it's really great that a lot of these initiatives have that added bonus of saving money too. Um, a question I did have about the grey water. Mm. Um, so I guess when I have a shower and it goes down the drain, um, I guess – in my, what I imagine happens is it just gets processed and cleaned. Mm -hmm. But if I were to start using the, is that, I guess it's the products that we use normally, is that bad for the environment? Should we be going specifically for the grey water products? Um, I think it's a great idea if mm -hmm. you can. Um, so yeah, in Melbourne, the water does um, get processed and cleaned um, mm -hmm. at water treatment plants. But there's always going to be, you know, leaks along <laughs> along the way. Um, if there's flooding, those chemicals and things can get out um, into the waterways and into our environment. Um, they can affect our wildlife negatively. So uh, cleaning products in particular around your home, um, it's always a good idea if you can go for the grey water friendly option because then you know for sure, even if there is, you know, a leak somewhere along the way or um, if there's an event and those... Um, those cleaning products are released into the environment, you know it's not going to hurt anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Um, I'll have to have a look at all of my products. I think they're probably not very good. 
Um, there's a lot of alternatives these, mm-hmm. these days is the good thing. So yeah. um, some of them you can't find uh, at your typical supermarket, but there's a lot of eco-friendly stores that are popping up these days, um, stores where you can buy things in bulk, um, package-free. And even I think the um, one of the Coles here in Melbourne is trialling um, like a self-serve cleaning product packaging free station uh, where you can just take in a jar and go and, you know, press a button and have it filled up with washing detergent, for example. So, yeah, it's great. And it's um, definitely a lot better than it was a couple of years ago. (laughs) Um, So this sort of brings to mind, it sounds less, it sounds more expensive and less convenient to do that. Um, Is there this sort of um, balance between those two um, when you're looking at sustainability, I guess? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think for a long time, um, you know, especially when I first got into this area about 10 years ago, sustainability really was kind of a privileged thing. Um, it was more expensive to live sustainably, um, and totally understand, you know, I'm speaking from a position of someone who, Um, lives alone, who doesn't have a family to take care of as well. Um, You know, I have the the time and the money um, to really engage with these things. So I think that's probably really important to acknowledge. Um, But I think the the real benefit, um, especially of the things like the bulk stores where you can get, um, you know, really concentrated laundry detergent, for example, it might seem like it's a bit more expensive, but it's going to last a lot longer because you're not just paying, you know, for water. Yeah. <laughs> it's really concentrated. Um, and that's a really common theme with these sustainable products. A lot of the times they are a lot kind of stronger gram for gram um, compared to the traditional products. But I think as well, if you're implementing kind of all of these things at once, the savings on your utilities, like your energy, your water, Um, are hopefully going to offset some of the maybe slight increases where you're paying for the more eco-friendly products, at least in theory. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And um, I guess with the convenience as well, um, like it's very easy for, um, and it is a bit easier for me, I guess, because I live in an area where there is quite um, a focus on this type of thing. So I know there's a shop near me that does eco-friendly products. But if I run out of washing detergent at 10 o'clock at night, um, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to the supermarket. Yeah, of course. Um, Because that's what's open and that's what's near me. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So I guess, does this mean you have to be really great at planning and you have to spend a lot of time thinking about sustainability? I think um, it definitely helps to have a bit of a plan. And um, I think that's a really great point that you made that a lot of these things aren't as immediately accessible as a lot of the supermarket items are. Um, and again, I think it just comes back to trying your best. You know, if you if you run out of laundry detergent at 10 o'clock at night and you really need to wash your work clothes the next day, like the earth will forgive you. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Um, you're still trying. You know, it takes time to, um, it takes time to change. Like humans don't like change. That's totally normal. We get kind of stuck in our comfort zones and that's just a real human thing. Um, I think we just need to be patient with ourselves and be kind to ourselves as well. Um, You know, what we were talking about before about limited levers of control, 
um, around our own kind of emissions and carbon footprint. Uh, there are entire like large corporations that emit more than whole countries. <laughs> wow. So, you know, when you put it in context like that, it's great that um, people want to make individual change and, you know, take accountability for themselves and try and live more sustainably. And I think that is really important still. But in the context of, you know, the broader world, um, corporations and governments need to take on their fair share as well. So, you know, if you forget your keep cup at the cafe a couple of times and you get a, a takeaway coffee or if you need to buy, you know, traditional laundry detergent from the supermarket, that's okay. <laughs> what can we do about, I mean, maybe there isn't anything we can do, um, but is there anything we can do to like get governments and organisations to sort of go um, to, to stand more strong yeah. on climate tra- change? Definitely. Um I think use your voice and use your money to vote. So um, look into candidates uh, that support climate action, um, that support sustainability. When there is an election, do your research. Um, You can write letters to politicians encouraging them to to vote on important issues related to climate change. Um, Have a look and see what programs your local government offers. Um, For example, at Dandenong, we have a community sustainability advisory committee. So um, we have about eight people who are um, either living or working in Greater Dandenong and they come and tell us what's important to them. And um, that forms the basis of a lot of our policies and programs at a local government level. Um, Call out corporations that are doing the wrong thing. You know, um, try not to support them if you can avoid it. Um, money speaks very loudly (laughs) and if your dollars are going to corporations that are being responsible and are doing the right thing, things will gradually change. Um, And I think one of the biggest things you can do is have a look at your bank accounts, have a look at your superannuation. Um, If you are someone who invests, take a look at your portfolio. If any of, um, you know, your banks or your super funds or your investments support fossil fuels or um, things related um, to climate change and global warming, consider switching to a more ethical alternative that doesn't. Um, Renewable energy in particular is a huge area of of growth at the moment. Um, There's a lot of startups and great technological firms um, doing great things that would gladly take your money (laughs) um, if you wanted to invest in them. So. That sounds great. Um, I'll have to look. I've had my bank for so long. Mm. My parents signed me up. I didn't have any <laughs> choice there. Um, I'll have to see what they're doing. Um, that sounds like something easy, easy enough to do. Yeah, it's a simple Google. Mm. Yeah. So before we get into the next section, what is like a carbon or ecological footprint? Yeah. Um, so both of these things are related, but they're slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um An ecological footprint basically has a look at the total resources needed to um, sustain the world if everyone chose to live like you. Mm -hmm. So it's basically looking at your lifestyle, some of the choices that you make um, around your house and the way you kind of get around. (laughs) Um, And it looks at the total um, land area, so things like forest and grassland, Um, the total amount of 
water um, and ocean. Uh, and as part of an ecological footprint, it also looks at your carbon footprint. So an ecological footprint contains a carbon footprint component, um, but a carbon footprint uh, doesn't contain an ecological footprint, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. um, I think we'll link uh, to a footprint calculator mm. um, in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to calculate theirs. But um, a carbon footprint is basically looking at how many resources you're consuming from a carbon emissions perspective. So it's saying you, Jess Harrison, use this amount of resources and you're emitting this amount of emissions into the Earth's atmosphere every year. So it's a really helpful way of contextualising um, how you as an individual have an impact on the world. Um, and it also, I think you need to understand where you're at before you can make any changes um, mm. to improve. So, yeah. So we've actually done the um, a, a carbon footprint or was it ecological footprint calculator? Yes, we have. Um, so we're going we're gonna to discuss that now. And we're actually going to introduce for his first time on the podcast, Jerry, our producer. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> um, so how are you today? I'm I'm very good. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. Mm. Um, any comments so far? Um, no, not really. Just that I'm getting more scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you do the uh, calculator as well? I did. It said mm -hmm. um, that it takes me four and a half planets every year. Like I, my resources are all done by April. Yeah, um, I did. I did that as well, and I got three point four Earths. So I would overshoot the um, my overshoot day. Well, do you want to explain this a bit first before we? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the calculator that we're looking at, um, it's on their World Wildlife Fund website, and um, it asks you a bunch of questions about things like uh, your diet and the types of food you eat, um, the house you live in your energy usage, um, how much waste you generate, so uh, how many new kind of products you buy each year. Um, and at the end, it spits out, if everyone in the world lived um, like you do, how many Earths would we need to sustain everyone? Um, and it also tells you, if everyone lived like you um, each year, at what point would we overshoot Earth's um, capacity to regenerate? So there's this concept of um, Earth Overshoot Day um, and that's pretty much exactly that. If everyone, um, you know, continued to live this way, at what point would we deplete Earth's resources each year? So it's been getting closer and closer to the start of year, the year um, since this concept first was around in the 70s. Um, so back in the 70s, you know, I think it used to be kind of around December and then it's just crept back and back. And um, I've got a note here about when it was this year. I just have to find it. Um, yeah. So in 2022, Earth Overshoot Day was July 28th. Wow. So we've already shot, shot past that um, mm. at just over halfway through the year. Um, so just to, to put um, Jerry and Gabriella's results into perspective, the average Australian uses 4.5 Earths. So Jerry's right right on target there. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I feel a little bit better then. Yeah, there you go. Sorry, not meaning to um, – <laughs> no disrespect to Jerry. Point, point 0.7 better. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I looked at a couple of other countries um, as well where I know uh, the podcast might be streamed. So um, the average uh, person in the United Arab and Emirates uses 5.1 Earths. Um, the average Malaysian person uses 2.7. Um, and the average Romani- Romanian person uses 2.3 Earths. So, Okay, so there are some countries where it's um, much less. I mean, I guess 2.2 2 Earths is still too many. Exactly. <laughs> what countries, do, do, I mean, if you know this, what countries yeah. do you know don't overshoot or around about the one mark? Um, so I think pretty much every country actually does overshoot. Um, I'm just having a look at... Earth Overshoot Day to find out when the... Okay, so um, in 2022, the predicted overshoot day that's kind of closest to the end of the year is December 20, um, and that's for Jamaica. Okay, I mean, that's that's a pretty good effort from Jamaica. That's pretty close. It's only, you know, a few <laughs> weeks off, so good work, <laughs> good mm-hmm. work, Jamaica. Um, but, yeah, places like Australia, Canada, United States, the Emirates, they're all kind of right up there yeah. um, in terms of Earth Overshoot Day. So in Australia, um, our overshoot day this year was actually March 23rd. Wow. That's, um, that's barely the year. Exactly. Yeah. That's what, a quarter, quarter of the way yeah. through the year. So it's, um, it's pretty abysmal mm. by Australia. Um, yeah. And that's because we rely a lot on um, coal-powered um, electricity which is a very inefficient way of generating electricity that's very emissions intensive. So um, just to share my own results. Um, so I obviously think about this topic a lot and um, I'm definitely not perfect, but I do try my best um, to live as sustainability as sustainably as I can, sorry. Um, if everyone lived like me, we would still need 1.4 Earths. <laughs> so definitely uh, some improvements to be made there. Um, and my personal Earth Overshoot Day is 24th of September. So um, I pretty much don't eat any animal products. Um, obviously, I, I try not to use my heater too much. I try not to generate food waste. I try not to drive um, too much. But even still, uh, we'd need 1.4 Earths. Um, and it honestly, if you live particularly in a, a Western country, it is impossible to get below one Earth. Um, and I think that ties into what we were talking about before, about uh, things that are within our own levers of control. Um, I personally can't go out there and dismantle the, <laughs> the coal-fired power plants. Um, I can't directly change where my electricity comes from. I do purchase 100% um, renewable or green power electricity, so my emissions there are offset. But even still, um, yeah, we'd still need 1.4 Earths. So. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's a bit disheartening, I guess, to know that we can't actually live within our with, live within our means, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, because you're someone who your your job is based on on doing this, and you know if you can't do it, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really hard. And you know, we talked about for Australians, we have um, inefficient electricity generation, but for someone in the UAE, um, accessing fresh, locally grown produce 
is going to be a challenge just by virtue of the climate. So, you know, there are little things you can do there, like you could grow some veggies or herbs or something maybe indoors, but definitely not enough to sustain you. So um, it is really challenging. There's only so much we as individuals can do. And I think it just reiterates the importance of using your voice and your money um, to vote. Yeah, definitely. Um, So what else can we do, I guess? Um, You mentioned you don't eat a lot of meat. Yeah, I think... Well, you don't eat any animal products, I guess. Yeah, for the most part. I um, will admit my grandparents live in East Gippsland and they brought me back some beautiful um, Gippsland honey the other day. So, you know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not infallible. That was t- too tempting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, one of the, the biggest things that I think people don't realise is just how emissions-intensive things like red meat and dairy are. So it's not only the land use, um, you know, of cows need to eat, (laughs) they need to be grazing on grass, they take up a lot of room to do that. Um, But cows actually generate methane um, when they burp, which is another um, form of greenhouse gas emissions. So they're actually contributing directly um, to to climate change as well. Um, Not that we blame them, cows are very cute, but... um, If you can cut down on your red meat consumption and your dairy consumption, that's already um, a huge amount of emissions saved. And um, I'm not saying you have to go (laughs) vegan. Um, Again, we talked about, you know, that's something that's relatively easy in Melbourne, but it's not everywhere else and it's more expensive and, um, you know, it is a bit of a privilege to be able to achieve. But even if you try having a vegetarian meal one day a week, um, instead of eating red meat, that would make a huge dent um, in your emissions. You know, you're cutting out, if you have one veggie meal a week, that's 52 veggie meals for the year. Um, So that's quite a simple thing I think people can do. um, And it's very achievable as well. Mm. Um, Something that I I sort of notice, um, I sort of, I try to balance my meat consumption, sort of do at least half and half or so. Yeah. But something I have noticed is if you're buying like a veggie burger, there's a lot of packaging there. Mm. Or if you're buying a lot of those, um, a lot of, yeah, I guess products come with just a lot of packaging. Yes. Um, and that's that can be a big issue. You know, you're trying to eat healthy and you're trying to eat sustainably, mm. um, trying to eat more vegetable um, or plant-based products. Yeah. But then you're left with all this plastic at the end. Um, do you have any suggestions for that or is it just something that we have to, um, demand from the organ, from the companies? (laughs) I think it's a bit of both and it's a really good point. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have seen fresh produce in plastic packaging necessarily. It's, um, it's become a, I think a real reflection of, um, easy consumption kind of culture. Uh, and convenience foods. So, um, again, I uh, don't have anyone else to cook for. So, um, you know, I really feel for people with families who are trying to balance work and cooking healthy and taking care of their kids. Like, that obviously makes things harder. Um, so, I think it's a, a balance. Um, a lot of local grocers will have plastic free um, produce or at least reduced compared to the stereotypical kind of supermarkets where, 
you know, sometimes you can't buy specific kinds of produce uh, that aren't, you know, in a, a plastic container wrapped in soft plastic. So um, there is a couple of, you know, if you really can't avoid the plastic um, in Australia, we do have soft plastics recycling options. Um, one of the biggest ones is Red Cycle, and they often have collection points um, around supermarkets or uh, local council buildings sometimes have them as well. So if you absolutely can't avoid the plastic or if the plastic-free option is too expensive, um, you can just collect those soft plastics and drop them off to one of those collection points um, and they'll be recycled and made into things like park benches. Um, they can even be uh, a component of new roads as well. So at least they're getting reused um, for something. But yeah, it's always, if you can, it's best to avoid the plastic rather than recycle it. Okay, yeah. Um, and is recycling good? <laughs> yeah. Does it work? I mean, it's it's a tough one. Um, recycling is obviously better than things going to landfill um, and plastics in landfill take thousands and thousands of years to break down. So um, we obviously want to avoid that situation. But um, I think it's hard because uh, recycling has to be done correctly for it to have any real benefit. Um, and talking about, you know, both of us have said we live in apartment buildings. Um, at my apartment building, we have shared recycling bins that everyone uses and the amount of times I find things that shouldn't be in the recycling bins in there. Um, I'm sure my neighbours think I'm really weird because if I do see something that shouldn't be in there, I'll just grab it out and put it in the correct bin. Um, but if a recycling bin is um, more than about 5% contaminated, so say, for example, someone's accidentally put um, some rubbish that can't be recycled into a, a recycling bin. When the waste contractor comes to pick up the bins, if they have a look and they determine um, that more than about 5% of that bin uh, is contaminated, it gets diverted to landfill. Oh. So <laughs> that makes it hard when you're not entirely in control of that, if you have neighbours, if you have shared bins. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, there's this thing called the waste hierarchy, uh, which is avoid, reduce, reuse, recycle, and then finally dispose. Um, so you kind of want to follow that. Like, for example, um, my old phone recently died. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? Like, I know there's kind of precious um, metals and things in this phone. Um I looked into getting it repaired, but it was just too far gone. Um, I always have like fairly old <laughs> phones. I tend to use them until they fall apart. But I was thinking, you know, do I buy a new phone? And then um, I looked into refurbished phones. So they're phones that have been previously used and then someone has professionally, you know, cleaned them and touched them up. And, um, you know, my, my phone that I have is pretty much pretty much as good as new. There's a few little scratches and things, but um, that's an example of reusing something rather than buying new. Um, and I dropped my old phone off uh, at our council offices um, in Dandenong. Actually, we have a, a phone collection point. So I dropped my old phone off to um, 
to go to a recycling plant to be disassembled. Um, the metals and things within the phone will be reused and will go into a new phone in the future. So, Yeah, I definitely, um, I kept all my old phones for years because I was like, <laughs> I know you're not supposed to put them in the bin, but I don't know where to put them. And then eventually I found that my council does also take them. Oh, great. Same with also batteries. So I like took down yes. all of my old, uh, <laughs> went down one day with uh, like a bag full of batteries and like old phones and all that technology and I dropped them all off. And that was such a good feeling. Good um, <laughs> but I never thought of buying a refurbished phone. Like I buy secondhand lots of things, but yeah. I've never thought about buying secondhand electronics. So that's a really great option. Yeah. And again, mm. it ties back into um, the cost saving component mm. that we talked about before. Um, you know, if you're willing to have a phone that is maybe a couple of years out of date, that might have some light scratches and things like um, I got a, a Google Pixel because it has a really good camera. Um, and, you know, it cost about a quarter of what it would cost new. So um, that was a real benefit for me. <laughs> and the thing is, is that I will scratch the phone anyway. Exactly. Yes, me too. Notoriously clumsy, <laughs> constantly dropping things. Yeah. I always have a screen protector on mine and it, every time, as soon as I put it on, it, 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 I drop it. <laughs> screen protector breaks. I just leave it. <laughs> well, it's doing its job. Exactly. <laughs> so we also talked a little bit earlier about what renters can do. Mm. Um, so other than, yeah, so what other things can renters do? Um, you know, if we can't change, we can't put more insulation in, we can't change the heaters, um, what can we do? Um, I think the first thing you can do is um, have a chat to your landlord or your real estate agent Um it can be really hard, uh, you know, you can't just directly go and, and change these things, but you can advocate for yourself. Um, the worst they can say is no, so you've really got nothing to lose. Um, in Australia at the moment, there are quite a few grants um, offered by various state governments for energy efficiency upgrades that can be accessed by renters. You still need permission from the landlord, but once you've got that, um, just can kind of roll with it. So um, we've heard anecdotally that that has been helpful for people renting because, you know, the owner of the building wants uh, to make a nice investment. They want the value of their property to increase. If you're saying to them, hey, there's a grant where we can get a reverse system um, AC unit installed, it won't cost you anything can you just sign this piece of paper? Chances are they're going to say yes because they don't have to do anything or pay anything and it's going to increase the value of their property. So I think that's one way of framing it. Um, I think other options, you know, there's a few that seem a little bit janky, but they do, they do help. And I remember one of the first share houses I was living in, um, it was this old house from probably the 1920s, there were like very visible holes um, through the walls into the outside. It just, it was like a tent. Um, it was so cold. And you can do things like um, taping bubble wrap to your windows, which sounds really silly. It does help though. Um, okay. That's a really kind of low budget DIY um, way that you can insulate. Um, you can get heavier curtains um, for your rooms as well. So, that's one of the best ways you can keep heat inside. Um, a lot of these old um, 
apartments or houses that tend to be occupied by renters will have single glazed windows. So um, they leak a lot of heat out of them. If you can cover that up, um, that will really help. You can also get some um, some gap filler from a hardware store. Um, go around and have a look if there's any gaps um, in the window frames and things like that. You can patch them up. Probably would just check in um, with your real estate agent before doing that. They probably won't care, but always a good idea to ask rather than get in trouble. <laughs> Something that I, I actually realised that there were some... Um cracks in my under the window frame mm. so I actually sent pictures to the landlord and I was like hey uh, I don't know if this is an issue um, and then next time that I called them to fix something more urgent they were like oh we'll come and do that at the same time oh that's great um, so um, and th- and I didn't realize that that would make if it would it, that it would change the heating situation in the apartment because um, it was in the summer yeah true yeah and I was just like oh I can see through to the outside. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Probably not great. Um, mm. So that's why I had it done. But, you know, um, now I'm thinking, should I just inspect everywhere and just, um, or, you know, is the landlord required to like maybe inspect and make sure that everything is airtight or um. is that not something that's required? I think probably more so in new developments, it mm-hmm. definitely is, um, yeah. but in existing buildings, probably not. It kind of, it is what it is. Um, what you sign the lease on is kind of what you you get. But mm-hmm. um, it is good that when you flag that with your landlord, they did correct mm-hmm. it. Um, I think, especially for things like that, it is very low cost for them <laughs> to address as well. So um, I think it's something you'd have a lot more success with um, if you just ask. And yeah, gap filler tends to be fairly cheap as well. So um, if you did want to do it yourself um, with the the landlord's permission, hopefully it wouldn't cost you too much either. Unless there was a really big gap, in which case (laughs) you might have bigger issues. Yeah, well, that house I was talking about before um, had a hole that possums used to to come in and out and they lived in the walls. Um, So you know, it was nice communicating with nature. Yeah. A little bit of entertainment. Yes. I'm sure they were very entertained by you. <laughs> I just wish they paid rent. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other tips for renters? Um, I think that's probably pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again, just use your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the worst thing they can say is no. Um, and if you do Google, um, you know, energy saving tips for renters, you find uh, a bunch of things that come up. And um, that study that I mentioned earlier um, in the episode about renters and um, heating and energy shock over winter um, has some further resources Mm. that you can look into as well. Yes, I'm very interested in reading that. Yes, it was a good read. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, bit grim, bit grim, but interesting. Okay, I'll... um... I'll make sure I read it just before I read a nice book. Good idea. Or um, make sure your cat's nearby. <laughs> have a nice cuddle. <laughs> yes. Have my um, my heater on me. Yes, exactly. Directly on Yes. <laughs> Very energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that you'd like to touch on? Um, I think I really would encourage people to try more plant-based food mm-hmm. if you can. Um, a lot of people are worried it won't taste good or... Um, you know, what you said before about, um, a lot of veggie burgers and things like that, having packaging is really valid. 
Um, I think when I first went vegetarian when I was 17, I ate a lot of frozen oven chips because um, <laughs> I, you know, um, I come from an Aussie family and, you know, it's the kind of meat and three veg. We don't season our food. Like it's not very bland. Um, it's a stereotype for a reason. Um, and then I discovered that other cultures and cuisines are delicious and um, spice is good. Um, and a lot of countries have cuisines that, um, you know, are accidentally vegetarian or vegan. So Indian food is fantastic, Mexican food, um, a lot of Southeast Asian food. Um, you know, once you get into curries and stir fries and things, like you don't have to worry about it not being tasty. It's it's going to be good. <laughs> Um, so the other thing is a lot of those um, sort of meat replacements, um, not just veggie burgers, but things like those sausages or like the minces, mm. are they better for the environment than eating meat? It's a really interesting question. Because um, they seem very processed and just like, you know, I don't even know what's in them. It's like ground soy with yeah. a bunch of different things and it doesn't seem very natural. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think... I get the impression that if you had a look at, you know, the resources required to make those things, um, then the resources that go into the packaging, um, you know, they're probably not going to come from your local neighbourhood. So there's transport emissions to get them to the store where you're buying them as well. Um, I'd be really interested to look at a comparison of all of those emissions versus if you ate a hamburger, mm -hmm. for example, and I don't know the answer um, mm. off the top of my head, but I'm sure someone's probably done done the math there. So yeah, and particularly like a hamburger that was made from a cow that grew that was you know, grown in Victoria, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and comparing those two. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'll have to do some research <laughs> after we finish up and let you know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's something I'd be very interested in. Um, we might have already sort of touched this a little bit, but um, is it what do you do in your own home to make it sustainable? Yeah, um, I guess we've touched on it a little bit, but um, I think just trying to avoid packaging as much as possible, trying to support local business. Um, I'm lucky enough that we have a grocer that's a five-minute walk from me um, that does a lot of kind of naked food Um not a lot of packaging uh, comes from Victoria, so locally grown. And um, working at Dandenong as well, we've got the amazing Dandenong Market uh, right nearby and that has hundreds um, of vendors from Victoria selling um, produce that they've grown themselves. So um, it's also very affordable. Um, and if you take your own bags, uh, pretty much everything is plastic free as well. Um, so I think that's definitely something that's important to me. Um, I try to use the grey water friendly products like we talked about before and just being really mindful of water, um, being really mindful of uh, heating and cooling my home. Um, I've got my worm farm, <laughs> so I no longer have to send um, any waste to landfill, which is great. And uh, where I can't avoid plastic packaging, I do collect it and recycle it as well. So um, typically, you know, I only have one small bag of rubbish that goes to landfill probably about once a month. Wow. Um, 
So it is possible. And again, it takes time and a bit of effort to figure out. But I think if everyone just does their best and gives it a go, um, you know, we'll get there. Um, something else that I do that I think may be helpful is I meal prep. So um, about once a month, I'll set aside an entire Sunday and just cook a bunch of different meals, like four or five. Um, and I think for me, because I live alone and I'm just cooking for myself, um, it can be really hard to eat like four serves of a meal before it goes off. So um, I found meal prepping really helpful because I'll freeze things um, kind of in single servings uh, and then just defrost them as I need throughout the week. So I can have five different meals each week. I won't get bored um, of what I'm eating. Um, it definitely is a big incentive for me to take those meals into work for lunch rather than buying takeaway or anything like that. Um, and it also means uh, your food won't go off or spoil before you've had the chance to eat it. Um, and like we said before, if, if things are looking like they're just about to turn um, and go off, things like the, the basil that we talked about before, um, there's a lot of ways you can preserve them to use in the future. And one of the biggest things um, that actually I only learned a couple of months ago was um, you can use glass jars to store things and you can put them in the freezer. I always thought that they'd break yeah. um, in the freezer, but turns out um, you just have to like chill them first in the fridge. Okay. So if you put them in the fridge for 12 hours or so and then move them to the freezer, they're mm -hmm. totally fine. Okay. It's just if it's going from room temperature straight to the freezer, the temperature shock is too much and the glass will shatter. Um, but since then, like I keep all of my glass jars if I need to buy them um, and I freeze just single serves of meals in there. Um, I make smoothies just with whatever's kind of lying around um, in my fridge. And yeah, it means that food waste is really drastically cut down. So that's been really helpful for me. Mm, I love some of these suggestions because definitely something that we end up doing is we end up throwing a lot of like veggies. I'm like, you know, mm. buying, buying um, mandarins thinking I'm going to yes. eat them. I'm going to eat them. And then I never <laughs> actually eat them. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I've yeah. got a question about this. Mm. Because, yeah, I, I also meal prep, so um, I think I don't produce much food waste. <laughs> but there's there are, like, meal kit services that are mm. really popular now. Yes. Right? And I think it's really good for, like, reducing food waste because they give you the exact amount of ingredients that you need. But um, we had a guest before that talked about food delivery and its impact um, and how... Like is meal kit service are meal kit services like really that much better or like because of like the delivery and packaging that they might do? I don't know if they use a lot of plastic, but yeah. Um, what do you, what's your opinion on that? Like with the meal kit stuff? Yeah, I think it's a, a great point, and again, it's something that's kind of only popped up in the last couple of years. Um, for the most part, from what I've seen, the benefit of them is exactly what you said. Um, it's cutting down on food waste. And oftentimes um, a lot of the food is uh, from the state in which it's being delivered. So um, you're cutting down on kind of transport miles there. But of course, it actually has to get delivered directly to your house as well. So um, yeah, I think I typically 
don't use them super often just because of all the um, the plastic that goes along with that. However, I think, you know, for someone who's really busy, who has a family, I think they're a lifesaver um, and they can work really well. Um, I think, you know, they're not terrible for the environment and they're not great for the environment either. Um, I think, you know, you just have to do what works for you Um acknowledging that everyone's life is a little bit different. And if a meal kit service means that you're eating a lot of fresh food, um, you're not wasting food, you're able to easily feed your family something healthy um, and save some time, then I think that's great. Um, And if it works for you, then yeah, you do you. (laughs) That's good to hear because... I don't use them, but occasionally I look at them. I'm like, oh, it'd be so good if I just didn't have to think about dinner tonight. Exactly. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, like we said before, the kind of mental load of um, having the time to to go and collect things and kind of prepare ahead of time to be more sustainable. If that meal kit service takes that kind of out of the equation for you and it works, then yeah, give it a go. Yeah. Um, So we've got some questions from the audience now. Great. Um, so our first question, um, is how much can one individual actually contribute to reducing, um, climate change when there are large companies polluting the environment? (laughs) Yeah, really great question. Um, I think it can feel really overwhelming, um, sometimes thinking about just the, the scope of what's happening and the amount of work we have ahead of us. Um, and I know you know, I'm not immune to it either. Sometimes I can feel really frustrated or a bit hopeless um, about the situation. But I think of just, you know, if everyone um, thought that way, if everyone kind of gave up, um, it would have a, a big impact around the world. You know, there's six million, six billion, six and a half billion of us on this planet. Um, seven. Seven Close now. To eight. Oh, Close I'm, to eight. Yeah. We've got Jerry on the the fact checking. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Um, yeah, and that number is growing all the time. So if you think about if everyone made some of those choices that you're making to be more sustainable, it would have a massive impact. Um, but I think at the same time, just recognizing that you know corporations and governments really have to pull their weight as well, um, and I think it was last week or also that there was some controversy around celebrities and their private jets. So when you think about it that way, like I think one of the biggest benefits of practicing a sustainable lifestyle is that it's a conversation starter for others. Um, And if you're able to demonstrate that, you know, it's not really all that hard, that it is achievable, that you don't have to do it perfectly, just make small, small changes, one change at a time. Um, you know, that's going to have a ripple effect throughout your community and through your family and your friend groups. And it will get people thinking about it and talking about it. Um, You know, can you imagine if everyone suddenly pulled their money out of a bank that was investing in new coal projects and switched to a bank that was investing in solar panels instead? Um, That would have a massive influence Mm -hmm. on climate change. So, yeah, I think it's all about context. Um, just trying your best and, um, yeah, remembering that there's only so much you can do. So be kind to yourself. Mm, that's a great, that's, that's nice to hear. Cause 
Yeah, sometimes I do feel a bit, you know, um, disheartened by the fact that, um, sure, I can, you know, um, catch the train to work every day instead of driving, but um, there's some um, company out there that's polluting or there's some celebrities taking their private jet wherever they like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one day I'll be an incredibly rich and famous person (laughs) Who decides not to have a private jet? Yeah, maybe you'll have a sailing yacht or something exactly. instead. <laughs> you'll have to invite me on board. Yes, yes, one day, one day. Um, actually, question two has been answered already, um, but Jerry had some questions. Um, sure. Um, yeah, so I recent well, Gabriella brought it brought it to me, and then I I tried to fact check it by going to Woolies. <laughs> um, um, she told me uh, that oat milk was it oat milk came from Sweden or something. Well, the oat milk that I got was yeah. from Sweden, and I mm. think that probably a lot of those alternative milks probably do come from overseas. Yes. Yeah, and um, then I I looked at I went to Woolies and I checked it, and most of the milk said. 100% Australian. And this is kind of act- actually like one of my other questions is like how to identify what's actually Australian mm. because I found out that that oat milk is grown in Australia but then it's shipped to Italy to be processed. Yes. And then back. But there is, I've seen, I, I saw news that they are trying to um, process it in Australia now. I think yeah. Perth was the first one. Mm. Um, but in terms of that, so if Australia has got like really good um, well, a big industry. We are one of the biggest exporters of dairy milk. Mm. Would the alternative of, you know, going to Italy and then back to Australia <laughs> be better than than dairy milk? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting question. And um, I do remember reading about the oat milk um, dilemma a couple of months ago when I was doing some research for the same reason. Um, and... It's really common, not just with non-dairy milk, but with other products as well. You'll see like grown in Argentina, packed in Thailand, then shipped to Australia. Um, and don't even get me started on the water um, water consumption of various non-dairy milks as well, because that's a different consideration. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really tough one and... I'm sure, again, someone probably has done the maths and the, the emissions calculations between growing something here, shipping it overseas to be packed and then back versus, um, you know, consuming dairy milk from a cow that's grown up in Victoria. Um, I, I feel like the travel emissions on the oat milk would probably come out higher. Um, I, I won't say that for sure, though. Um, But when I first made the switch away from dairy milk to non-dairy milk, trying to cut down on um, those food emissions, I was doing all this research and it was so confusing. Um, I think that's the problem with a lot of people. It's really confusing. Exactly. Um, What I found though, and this was the case um, when I last checked a couple of months ago when I ran into the oat milk question, um, soy milk. Uh, from soybeans grown in Australia is currently the lowest emission um, non-dairy milk that you can get. So if you can find um, soy milk in the shops, just have a look and make sure it is 100% Australian. Um, That's what I drink. 
Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Soy buds. I know. I think <laughs> almond is the highest in yes. terms of water and um, maybe land as well. But yeah. soy is like the bottom. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But I want to know though, if like, if there a way for like us living in Australia at mm. least because we don't know how it's like in other countries. Yeah, true. Is there like a label or how do you find out that, you know, everything is done in Australia? Yeah, so um, sometimes it's not super clear. Um, we do have a labelling scheme in Australia that gives you the percentage of the product um, that was grown in Australia. Um, and normally it will say if the product has been packaged elsewhere. I'm not sure off the top of my head if that's a mandatory requirement. It's just what I've noticed when I've been doing research. Um, but typically, you know, there's quite a few communities um, that practice sustainability or particularly for people who are interested in more plant-based food, there's vegan communities and things online where those questions are asked and people will go so far as to contact the company, get a response and then share it with everyone um, on the forum. So, um, yeah, I mean, when in doubt, give it a Google and see what you can find. There's a lot of information out there and it can feel overwhelming, you know, when you're just starting that journey and you're trying to cut down um, on things. It feels like you have to do so much research to find out um, what's right. And that's why I always say, like, don't do too much too soon. Um, if you want change to stick, just make simple changes, one change at a time. You don't have to immediately go fully vegan and never use your heating again and uh, only walk everywhere. Um, you know, just try switching to soy milk for a bit or have that's, a veggie meal a week. That's what I do at Woolies. Like whenever I try something new, mm. I, I I have to like stand yes. and like Google it for like 10 minutes exactly. and like avoid hitting people. So, yeah. <laughs> That's why it's good to go at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> like we said before, it's a bit quieter. Yeah. Mm. Well, to touch on, yeah, the whole baby steps thing. Mm. And that's kind of what I did. I cut beef out of my diet. I still eat um, chicken and uh, different seafood. Yeah. I cut beef because I saw like that's the worst one. Yeah. And that's one I can do without. <laughs> and it's also the most expensive one. So like. That's I'm, true. Win-win. Like, yeah, win-win. Um. Although um, me and my partner have been discussing like uh, sustainability stuff and like just eating meat in general. Um, one of our worries, and I think most people can empathize, um, sympathize with this, mm -hmm. is that you don't really know how much what you're doing is doing mm. in the grand scheme of things. So like, yeah. is there like any data on... on um, um, because we've seen a big trend of like people going vegan or vegetarian or just mm -hmm. cutting meat. Is there like a data on like what it's done to the meat or dairy industry on like if it's impacted, if it's actually done a change? Like have they been producing less or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Um, I would imagine just um, kind of extrapolating from a study I saw a couple of months ago about the increasing rates of um, vegetarian and, and veganism, that it probably has had an impact. But in terms of kind of facts and figures, I'm not too sure. Um, I just know, I think 
the figures were something like back in the 90s, it was kind of one in 50 people were vegetarian. Um, now it's kind of more like one or two in 10. So um, it is getting more and more common. It's and a big change. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and even just from personal experience, like I first went vegetarian when I was 17 um, and there, there was very limited kind of alternatives out there. Um, when I was in high school, I did an exchange abroad in Germany and that was almost impossible even just to be vegetarian um, because they love their meat um, over in Deutschland. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was, it was difficult. And then when I last went back five or so years ago, suddenly everyone was like, yeah, I'm vegan. And like all the supermarkets had all these alternatives and there was soy milk and stuff everywhere. Um, so yeah, it definitely just anecdotally, I think there would be um, a real impact, but it would be interesting to to research and find some actual facts and figures. So I'll add that to my list of things to look <laughs> up after this. <laughs> I, I think, think Jessica's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. <laughs> and I think we'll we'll have a really big notes section. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. The, yeah, in the notes section, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to do the open mic now. Um, you wanted to, uh, Was there anything you wanted to talk about? Um, I think I was just going to talk about um, giving more plant-based foods a try. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we've covered off on okay, that, yep. that really nicely. Um, so I might just switch it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think something that, you know, people are struggling with um, in this space is that feeling of being helpless and unable to make a difference. Um, and I know, you know, uh, in my field, people who work in the climate change space, we have this um, thing called climate fatigue where we're exposed to it constantly. It's a lot of doom and gloom a lot of the time. And sometimes we can get a little bit downtrodden um, and, you know, feel a bit um, frustrated, I guess, with the state of the world. Um, and I just wanted to share something that has really helped me. Um, I've started going to tree planting days. Uh -huh. So um, we run them through our council, through our uh, wonderful parks team. And there was one recently at the Dandenong Wetlands. Um, and just the, the feeling of physically doing something that you know is going to help with carbon sequestration, is going to provide habitat for the wildlife of the area, um, and just being around like-minded people who care about the environment, who want to do something to help, who are all, you know, volunteering their time to be there. Um, I've been going to these events kind of every couple of weeks <laughs> um, just to, to boost my morale and keep the motivation up. It really is healing, I think, to be in nature. So I highly encourage anyone who's feeling a bit stuck or frustrated or wondering what the point is um, with sustainability, just go out and get in nature, um, go for a hike, go for a walk, <laughs> look at a tree. <laughs> just um, We still have so many beautiful places in this world. Um, and yeah, I think it, it can be really healing. So get out there and enjoy it. <laughs> I think living in the city, sometimes I forget to go out into nature. Yes. Um, so that's a really good reminder. Definitely. Um, if I can make some time this weekend. <laughs> Good idea. 
Thank you. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I will warn you, Jessica Harrison is an extremely common name. Um, but if you search Jessica Harrison and Dandenong, it should show up. Um, if not, you can also find my contact details on the Southeast Council's Climate Change Alliance website, uh, which is seca, S-E-C-C-A dot org dot A-U. And we'll have all of this information in the show notes as well, so you can find it nice and easy. Uh, well, thank you, Jess, for joining me today. It was really great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.